a couple of years ago, Andrea and I were talking about some things we wanted to do, and I said, you know, Lila, our oldest daughter, is growing up, and we only have a few summers where we know for sure that she's going to be at home, and we can go on a family vacation, and if we're going to go to the places that I would like to take them, we had probably better start soon. There were a few places that I went growing up that I really loved. I, I cherished the memories of being there with my family. I wanted to share some of those sites with them. One of those places was Colorado. And so uh, I spent years dreaming of this vacation and months planning it in detail. And finally, last summer, we went on this family vacation throughout Colorado. And there are some things that you imagine and you think about ahead of time and you plan for, you prep for, you, you really build up in your mind. And then when you're there, when the time comes, when you're in the moment, it's a little disappointing. It's not what you expected, or worse, maybe it is what you expected, and it's just not as great as you thought that it would be. Has anybody ever had an experience like that? It's just like, uh, you know, okay, yeah, we planned it, and now uh, it's kind of a letdown. Thankfully, that was not our family vacation. We had a fantastic trip to Colorado. In fact, it was, it was really memorable and made some fantastic memories. All of it was great, but there were some highlights, and one of the things that I had really been looking forward to for a long time and thinking about was I wanted to hike and climb a 14,000-foot mountain in Colorado. And so finally the day arrived to do this. We were going to go do it. The hour had come, and it was awesome. My daughter Lila went with me. The last little bit of that hike was a struggle. The oxygen is thin up there, but we got there. We're looking around, and it's one of those rare, surreal moments when you realize that you're living the thing that you had been dreaming about for, for so long. Like, this is what I've been thinking about and planning for, and it's even better than what you expected. In fact, I've got a picture of Lila and I up on the top of Handy's Peak in Colorado, and it was fantastic. The view, having this memory with my daughter, having the perfect weather, all of it was, was awesome. Now, from very early in our series in the Gospel of John, we've heard Jesus refer to a very specific moment that he said was coming. John 2.4, John 4.21, John 4.23, John 7.30, John 8.20. Jesus says at these places, my hour has not yet come, or the hour is coming. He's got a very specific thing, an event, a date in mind. And now in chapter 12, we're kind of turning a corner in the gospel of John. All the signs that Jesus is going to do to reveal himself to the world have been done. He'll do no more miracles. He'll do no more signs. Jesus then tells uh, his, his disciples in John 12, 23, he tells them and the crowd around, the, around him, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. This is the moment we've been hearing about. It's the moment Jesus has been, has been talking about, we've been waiting for. This is the moment that, that we have looked up to and, and been building toward, but will it be what we expect it to be? Will it be everything we thought it would be? Will this moment be a catalyst for belief or will it be a catalyst for unbelief? This is the moment of Jesus' glory. He will be lifted up. But if you know the story, you know that that has a double meaning. He'll be lifted up on the cross first, and only then will he be lifted up out of death, out of the grave, and be lifted up back to the Father's right hand again in the ascension. And now that that hour has come and the last week of Jesus' life is here, the meaning of, of belief in Jesus, what it looks like to follow him and believe him, it seems to come into even clearer focus. The, the imagery of discipleship seems to get even sharper about what it means to be a follower of Christ. 
And what we'll find in John chapter 12, and I'm going to use an an image that's from the early part of the chapter to kind of describe what we learn in the chapter, but what we find in John 12 is this, that you should pour out your life on Jesus. You should pour out your life on Jesus, and we're going to consider this morning four traits of a life that's poured out on Jesus. Starting in John chapter 12, verses 1 through 6, we read this. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus is back again in Bethany, where he had raised Lazarus from the dead, and a meal was being given in his honor. Mary does something extravagant. She took a pound, Mark tells us, a pound of pure nard, and poured it all over Jesus. Nard was an aromatic substance made from the root and the shoots of a plant that grew in India. Now, I'm not sure if you're familiar with geography, but India is not near Israel. And this was a time when there was not Amazon Prime, and there was no Timu, and you didn't order online, and it showed up two days later on your doorstep. This would have been a very expensive substance. In fact, Judas goes on to say that this was worth 300 denarii. Why wasn't it sold and given to the poor? A denarii was was what a day laborer was paid for one day's wage. 300 would be a year's wage. And so to kind of put this in modern terms, even though they were certainly working longer hours and they probably worked six days a week, not five. But if you're going to say a 40-hour week at minimum wage in Massachusetts, you're talking about a substance, a jar that cost her more than $30,000, or was worth more than $30,000. In a parallel account in the Gospel of Mark, we're told that she breaks the jar open, meaning that she broke the top off the container so that she could pour it out, and she used up all of it. Remember that in those days, they, they didn't sit at a table like we do with chairs and a table. They reclined, and so he would have been laying on one on one elbow with his feet outstretched to the side so she would have access to reach all of him. Mark tells us that he anointed, or she anointed his head with this oil. John says that she anointed his feet. The implication, the image we get is that she used this oil and she poured it all over Jesus as he was reclining at table. And then John tells us that in an act of extreme humility, she wiped Jesus' feet with her hair. It's hard not to think that John's note in verse 3 about the fragrance filling the entire house is more than just a, a neat historical note. Undoubtedly, the whole house was filled with this sweet scent after such an extravagant act, but it was more than just that historical note. It was symbolic of her sincere love and worship and of the love and worship that we can pour out on Jesus as well. Of course, there are always those who are critical of extravagant and sincere worship like Judas was. Obviously, Judas's motives were mixed. He had the money back. He was in charge of the resources that were donated to Jesus and the apostles' ministry, and he used to steal from them. But still, even knowing that, it's hard not to sympathize at least a little bit with his pragmatism, isn't it? 
$30,000 poured out on Jesus, gone. What good did it do? It seems like it was wasted, didn't it? What did Mary have to show for it? Jesus, though, says, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. Now, Jesus' words are unexpected, and we shouldn't try to, to read them with the idea that he means don't care for the poor. That's not what he's talking about. In fact, one way to show love is to care for the weak and the poor. But Jesus knew Judas's motives, and he also knew Mary's motives. He knew that Mary loved him for what he had done for her brother, but he also knew and understood that Mary was beginning to have a little bit deeper understanding of who he was and what he had come to do as this act demonstrated. And while she may not have seen exactly what was about to happen, that Jesus was going to be crucified, she nevertheless honored him like kings and priests were anointed in the Old Testament. And though she may not have understood it totally, she was anointing Jesus' body for burial. This jar that she had kept for some significant event, or maybe it was a dowry or an insurance for her future, she now pours it all out, all $30,000 worth of it out on Jesus. This was the last sweet smell Jesus would smell on earth. Since they didn't have showers and washing machines for their clothes, they didn't bathe daily because they didn't have access to that. They didn't wash their clothes every day like we do. It is not at all far-fetched to think that when Jesus knelt in agony in the Garden of Gethsemane, he could smell the nard that Mary had used to worship him coming off of his robes. It's not at all far-fetched to think that when he was stripped of those robes so that he could be paraded through the streets and nailed to the cross that that smell still hung in his hair and on his skin from Mary's act of worship. And what seemed like such a waste to those present, present at that dinner became a fragrance of worship that accompanied Jesus to his grave. Think of it. The other women that got up early on, on Easter morning to go and anoint Jesus' body never got to do it. He was gone. He had been resurrected before they got there. Mary was the only one who got to do what she intended to do, to anoint Jesus' body for burial. And Mary, in her extravagance, before she understood how it was all going to turn out, by faith in Jesus as her Messiah and her Savior, embarrasses herself, not only by pouring $30,000 of fragrance on Jesus, but she does something that would have been considered culturally totally inappropriate. She lets down her hair publicly something that no Jewish woman would ever have done before any man except her husband. She lets down her hair, bends down, and wipes Jesus' feet with it. How many times, I wonder, does a little Judas pop up in your life telling you that it's a waste to worship Jesus with everything? to pour your life out on him, to give up money and career and status, to waste time on missions trips and worship services on Sundays, to risk embarrassment of inviting somebody to come with you to an Easter service, to give sacrificially of your money for missions or for the church, to raise your hands, to shout in worship, to give everything for Jesus without holding back, to listen to the voice of the Spirit telling you to abandon your own plans and your own concerns and instead to follow Jesus. How many times does the voice of a parent or a coworker or a friend or some other pragmatic person become the voice of Judas, discouraging all-in sacrifice for Jesus? 
How often does a church member become the voice drawing someone away from complete surrender and abandon to Christ and offer something more respectable and more reasonable in the place of extravagant worship? And how much more ought we to give everything in worship since we know what Jesus did? Mary did it prophetically, not knowing what he was about to do fully for her. We know what he's done for us. And knowing that Christ died and was raised to save us, Paul says that the reasonable thing to do is not to withhold, but to give your whole self to him. What else could you do, Paul says? Romans chapter 12, verse 1, Therefore I exhort you, brothers, through the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, which is your reasonable service. Nothing else makes sense for you to do except to pour out your whole life on Jesus because he poured out his life for you. Let me encourage us that in our service and worship of Jesus, we offer it with sincere hearts and we offer it with everything that we've got. No gift is too precious for Jesus who died for us. And and in whatever gift you're giving, in whatever worship you're offering, Have Mary's attitude of surrender and humility and extravagance. Jesus, I hold nothing back. It's all for you. And be careful not to judge the motives of others who are trying to pour their lives out to Jesus and you think, well, that's a waste because they may be doing exactly what Mary was doing. And you're judging their waste when really they're just offering all they have to him. Let me give you an example of this that feels really relevant to us as a church right now. I was reading a commentary to prepare for this message, and one of the applications of the tension between pragmatic and extravagant worship or service to the Lord was expressed like this. At the simplest level, this tension surfaces when a church board debates refurbishing a tattered, dark sanctuary, and one person piously remarks, Jesus would have us feed the poor, not install new carpet and lights. And there it is. Mary's nard has been sold, and another congregation has been forbidden to honor Jesus in a way that may be fitting. I was reminded as I read this about the attitude we should have regarding our renovation. Of course, you don't just do every extravagant thing and stick Jesus' name on it, but it's certainly possible that even in something like this, when you bring your heart and you do it with the right attitude, you are indeed pouring your love and your life out on Christ. I ask myself, as I bring my offering for the renovation month after month, do I have the attitude of Mary when I do that? Am I coming and saying, Jesus, this is for you. I want your name to be glorified in this place. I want people to worship you more fully than they ever have before here. I want more people to hear the good news of Jesus in this place than we've been able to reach in the past? Am I coming with the best I have to honor Jesus, not always seeing what the fruit will look like years or decades down the road, but trusting that Jesus is able to do better with my worship than even what I expect? Do I have his mission in mind as I give, remembering the point that he wants to use the space to glorify his name and bring more people into his kingdom? And this attitude not only applies to a renovation, but to the very attitudes with which we worship and serve Jesus in all of life. That worship should be like a life poured out on him. And a life poured out means that you worship him with everything. You hold nothing back. You turn the bottle over until every drop is gone. And that's 
real worship of Jesus. The next trait of life poured out on Jesus may be a little bit more difficult for us to discern. It comes from verses 12 to 16. It's typically referred to as the triumphal entry. We read this, the next day the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things but at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. We know that the people who greeted Jesus were expecting him to enter Jerusalem and they were expecting him to overthrow the Romans and to give them political freedom. They thought he was coming to lead a war, a revolution. We know this because they picked up palm branches to wave at him. If you remember a couple of weeks ago, we talked about the Feast of Dedication when Judas Maccabeus led the Jews in revolt against the Syrians. They recaptured the temple, rededicated it to the Lord, and we in celebration of that rededication, they waved palm branches. And from that point on, now a couple of hundred years later in the time of Jesus, the palm branch had become a symbol of national pride and a symbol of their victory over those Syrians and of their hoped for victory in the future. If you're gonna kind of try to pull this into our culture, it'd be like if we were having a parade for Jesus and we all showed up with those little American flags, we were waving those. That would be the, the modern equivalent to what they were doing with palm branches. They even quoted the psalm people would say when going up to the temple, Psalm 118, and they added their own little interpretation onto the end. You see, Psalm 118 doesn't say that the king of Israel was coming. They added that themselves. So they know what Jesus, they, they, we know what they were expecting Jesus to do. Ironically, Jesus was king. Jesus is king. But he didn't become king at all like they expected he would. The scene is reminiscent of John chapter 6. After Jesus feeds 5,000, says in John 6, 15, perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Only this time, Jesus knows his hour has come. So he can't withdraw. He's got to go into Jerusalem. So in order to curb their enthusiasm and calm their zeal, he gets on a donkey, not a war horse, a donkey. And he fulfills the prophecy of Zechariah 9, chapter 9. John quotes it in John 12, 15. Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples didn't understand this until after Jesus was crucified and resurrected and ascended into heaven. Sometimes I wonder if, if we fully comprehend what Jesus was doing we know when Jesus was tempted, Satan offered to him the kingdoms of the world if he would just bow down and worship Satan. Here, the Jewish people offer to make him their king, but Jesus knew that God was going to make him king in a way that they could not. So Jesus turns them down by sitting on a donkey, fulfilling prophecy, and humbly riding into Jerusalem, not to make war, but to make peace with God through the blood of his cross, which was a better way. The second trait of a life poured out on Jesus is submitting your expectations to him. In our zeal for politics or freedom or our culture, are we able to, to submit our expectations to Jesus and humbly serve others, understanding that Jesus' kingdom is not of this world? Sometimes we can be so zealous to protect 
our way of life and our dreams that we may be tempted to use Jesus as the reason we refuse to be humble. When our values cause us to cause us more fear about losing what we hold dear than our values cause us to love our enemies, perhaps we're waving palm branches when we should be riding donkeys. I'm thinking of when we vehemently oppose immorality but don't also preach the good news of reconciliation with God, which is, by the way, one of the dangers of both the so-called social gospel that just does social good works but doesn't preach Jesus and religion that gets tied up with politics that just teaches morality, a legalistic form of morality, but never teaches people they can be right with God through the sacrifice of Jesus and by faith in him. In both cases, Jesus becomes a means to an end rather than the end itself. But Jesus is not a means to an end. He is the goal, and it's why we begin by proclaiming Jesus. When we're comfortable with the way that power is used in our world, we're waving palm branches rather than riding donkeys. When we're happy to gain cultural victories no matter the cost, we're waving palm branches rather than riding donkeys. When we accept the prosperity gospel that all God wants for you is to be wealthy and happy and to win, we're waving palm branches rather than riding donkeys. When we live like God's highest call for our lives is the American dream, we're waving palm branches. When we abandon God because he doesn't give us what we expected and what we wanted, we're waving palm branches. But a life poured out for Jesus is a life that rides a mule that humbles itself on a donkey. It's someone who submits their expectations for a good life to God and allows him to define what good looks like rather than the culture defining what the good life looks like. And the reason you can pour your life out like that in trust and surrender is because Jesus did it first. And so you know that if you follow him in surrender, you'll also follow him in life. If you follow him in death, you'll also follow him in real life. And this idea of real life leads to the next portrait of a life that's poured out. Some Gentiles were at the feast of the Passover and they wanted to come and to see Jesus. They approach Philip and ask him if they can talk to Jesus. Philip goes to Andrew and they go to Jesus together to ask him if they can talk with Jesus. And Jesus gives this answer in verses 23 to 25. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever lo loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. This may seem like an odd answer to the request of some Gentiles to come and speak with Jesus. But Jesus interpreted this event as a signal that the hour of his glorification had come. He'd been sent to the Jews, but he knew his death would be for the whole world. And so he takes these Gentiles coming to him as an indication, the time has come for me to die so that I will be king not of the Jews only, but I will be king of, of, of the world. He used this common agricultural symbol of a seed being planted, dying, in order to produce more fruit. But then he takes it and he doesn't just apply it to himself, he applies the image to anyone who wants to follow him. There's a, song, there's a song I like that echoes what Jesus is saying. It's by an artist named John Foreman and the chorus says this, all along I thought I was learning how to take, how to bend, not how to break, how to laugh, not how to cry. Really, I've been learning how to die. And that's what a Christian life is. We're learning how to die to ourselves. 
If you love your life, you'll lose it. But if you hate your life, you'll gain eternal life. Jesus wasn't talking about hating yourself in the modern sort of psychological sense of like, I don't like myself, I hate my life, and, and this is so boring, and I'm good for nothing. He's not talking about pop psychology. He is talking about your attitude toward what meaning and purpose is. D.A. Carson writes this, self must be displaced by another. The endless, shameless focus on self must be displaced by focus on Jesus Christ, who is the supreme revelation of God. That change of focus ensures both death and glorification. For the Jesus who says where I am, my servant will be, is on his way to the cross and to his Father. He's on his way to death and to glorification. And so the third trait of a portrait of of somebody's life who's poured out on Jesus is to replace belief in self with belief in Jesus. Salvation is not some religious repetition. It's not a hand that you raise. It's not just a prayer. It's not just a title that you claim for yourself, I'm a Christian. It's not a sticker that you slap on the exterior of an unchanged life. Salvation is being born again. It's being born of the Spirit of God. It is the replacement of a life lived for yourself with a life lived in surrender to Jesus. It is a life poured out for Jesus. Jesus doesn't want you to lose life, not in the ultimate sense. He does want you to lose your life, but he wants you to gain his. Remember what the Gospel of John is about. The Gospel of John, he says that he wrote these things, that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ and that by believing, you might have life in his name. Yes, he wants you to die to yourself, but he wants you to live in him. And so Jesus doesn't just leave this as some some philosophical, abstract idea. He makes it concrete in verse 26. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. A life poured out is a life about serving and following Jesus. It's about going where he goes, doing what he does. When you follow Jesus, you adopt his goals as your goals. He only did what he saw the Father doing. You only do what you see Jesus doing. You pour out self-determination and you let Jesus determine where you go. You give up self-absorption and you become absorbed with Jesus' purposes. You do this because Jesus led the way. His glorification involved his death. Do you think that your glorification is going to somehow avoid that fate? The Apostle Paul put it this way in Romans chapter 6, that if we have been united with Christ in a death like his, we will also be united with him in a resurrection like his. And so if you want life, the way to go is through death. It's through Jesus. It's through the death of self that gives yourself up and instead makes Jesus the focus. We can't go through each verse in this passage, but before we move on to the last portion, or the last portrait, look at verse 31 with me. Jesus says, now is the judgment of this world. The hour has come. The world's going to be judged. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. Jesus' glorification, his death, his resurrection, his ascension back to the Father became the standard of judgment for the world. We don't see the judgment fully, but what he's saying is the cross is the standard of judgment. But that also means 
The cross is the means that the ruler of the world is cast out. Christian, I want you to do this. I want you to understand this with your life, that as you're living a life of service to Jesus, it is not a life of defeat. The cross is not a life of defeat. The cross is a life of victory. The cross is a place of victory. And if you're looking in your life and you're saying, man, there's, there's sin I can't overcome and there's difficulty in my life and, and the enemy is attacking, the thing to do isn't to think I'm gonna read the latest book and learn the latest mantra to say so that I can be free from this, this oppression in my life. The thing to do is not to listen to the latest YouTube preacher and, and, and think that, oh, I'm gonna get freedom from this, I'm gonna be delivered from this because I learned the right things to say, the right steps to take. The thing to do is to recognize maybe you've gotten too far from the cross and say, I'm going back to the cross Jesus is going to be my focus. I'm claiming the victory already paid for there. I don't need special words, special prayers, special mantras, special steps. I just need to take what God has given me in the cross of Jesus Christ and know his blood covers me. And so a life lived in service to Jesus is a life that returns to the cross as the place of victory. I like the way that a song by the artist David Crowder puts it. He says, the cross meant to kill is my victory. I listen to it every Easter and and in between too, but I love it because it reminds me that what the world looks at as defeat is the place and the moment in time when Jesus won. He won for me, he won for you, so let's pour out our lives for him. And that leads to the last portrait of a life poured out. Throughout this chapter, the animosity against Jesus by the Pharisees and the priests continues to grow as they see the people, the crowds are turning to him, they're listening to him, they're wondering what's gonna happen. And remember, John wrote this book probably about 60 years after he witnessed these events. And he was writing to churches, and one of the things that the churches were experiencing, probably written to a church in Ephesus, and one of the things the church was experiencing that was that when they were trying to witness and tell people about their faith in Christ was that people would turn to them and say things like, if Jesus is the Messiah, why have all the Jews rejected him? Right, that's a, that's a valid question. If Jesus is the king of the Jews, the Messiah come to save the Jews, why have so many of the Jews rejected him? And so John goes again one more time into why they are rejecting Jesus, their unbelief in Jesus. And again, we can't read all the verses, but I wanna encourage you to go back, read John 12 for yourself. I'm gonna give you just an outline through these verses to help you to understand what's going on and how they address this question. Why are so many Jews God's people rejecting their own Messiah. Verses 37 to 41 show us that God foreknew that many would not believe in Jesus and they would harden their hearts against Jesus, just as they hardened their hearts against prophets and against God's word in the past. John wasn't saying, and he's not building a theology of determinism here, he's not saying God determined that they wouldn't believe, but that because they had rejected God's word, that word served to harden them further against Jesus the Messiah. They turned away from God, and so how are they gonna receive the salvation God has sent? Verses 42 to 43 demonstrate that some believed, but they did it in a superficial manner, that their fear of other people kept them from really trusting Jesus. And then in verses 44 to 50, we're reminded that people did not believe, not because Jesus came and he was harsh and he was judgmental and he was gonna judge the world, because Jesus came to save, they didn't believe because they loved the darkness. They did not want to believe. So the final portrait of a life poured out is the person who follows Jesus even when others do not. 
It's a person who believes in Jesus when others refuse to believe him. Verses 42 to 43 can illustrate the negative side of this portrait uh, for us. They say this, nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. The authorities believed Jesus, but they were afraid to admit it because of their fear of other people. C.H. Spurgeon wrote, you will never glory in God till first of all God has killed your glorying in yourself. If you haven't poured your life out on Jesus, then the fear of other people and what they think and how they interpret your actions, it's always going to be a motivation against Christ. Their unbelief will always influence you toward unbelief. But when you come to a point like Mary, who realized not only that Jesus had raised her brother from the dead, but that Jesus was the savior of the world, the Messiah, and you pour your life out on him, you don't care if you're embarrassed. You don't care what anybody thinks of you. You don't care if Judas pops up his ugly little head in all of his seemingly faithful, reasonable pragmatism and says, couldn't we have done something better with that gift? Wouldn't your life have been better spent in the banking industry? Or If you're a banker, I'm, I'm not saying that's bad. But I'm saying, maybe God has called you to be a missionary. And somebody pops up and says, wouldn't your life have been better spent elsewhere? Maybe God calls you into a particular, a particular ministry with, with a group of people that you're not paid to do. It can't be your whole life, but it requires a lot of your time. And you can't focus on career as much as you could. And somebody says, you could have climbed the ladder if it wasn't for. But a person whose life is poured out says, I do not care what these people think. Jesus died for me. And I'm going to pour out my life for him. Those four traits, worship him with everything, submit your expectations to him, replace belief in self with belief in him, and follow him even when others don't. They form a portrait of a life poured out on Jesus. Now this pouring out, it doesn't usually happen in one big act. There are some people, and plenty of them throughout the history of the church, and some, and when I say history, I don't want to leave out those who, this is their, their lives right now, who because of their faith in Christ, their love for him, they'll stand before courts, they'll stand before, they'll stand before mobs, they'll stand in the midst of, of riots, and they'll refuse to denounce Christ, and they'll be sent to prisons to never be heard of again. They'll be murdered, they'll be, they'll be executed. This has been the story of many. And in one moment, they pour out their life for Jesus in a beautiful offering, a fragrant incense. But for most of us, what happens is we don't have that same honor and the action and decision doesn't come so quickly. And so what we have to do every day is what Luke says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself daily, take up his cross and follow me. And so for us, pouring our lives out becomes a daily step-by-step -step thing where we say to Jesus, Jesus, today I have this jar. It's like my life. And by the end of the day, I want every drop to be gone for you. By the end of the day, I want it all to be poured out for you. And then I'll do it again tomorrow. And I'll do it again the day after that because you poured your life out for me. And Jesus, I trust that when I pour myself out, you're more than able to refill me with more than I need. You're more than able to meet me in that moment of offering 
You're more than able to protect me from the Judases that raise their ugly heads with doubt and unbelief. You're able to help me to pour my life out on you. I'm going to ask if you'd close your eyes for just a moment. Perhaps you've never given your life to Christ. You don't have that kind of belief, that faith in him. Maybe today you've heard the gospel of Jesus. And you've heard that belief in Jesus, trusting Jesus, is not just that you prayed a prayer one time, that you raised your hand one time. That can be a starting point. Don't get me wrong, and we do that. But that's not all there is to it. That a life given to Christ is a life poured out daily on him. And maybe you don't have that kind of relationship with God through Jesus. In fact, maybe you've been searching for other ways to to find life other than pouring your life out on him, other than losing your life that you might gain it in him. I wanna, I wanna challenge you with this today. Maybe you've been running and searching for ways and, and, and you've bought into some of the cultural ideas. We talked about giving up yourself today and instead putting Jesus in that place, displacing self with Christ and, and dying to yourself. And one of the things that our culture does so well is it tells us that you can be a nice, good person, but you don't have to give up yourself. What you need to do is find yourself. And so we have invented so many ways to go and to find yourself. And if you're a young person, you may think this is kind of a new thing. You might be enamored with all the new ideas and new ways that the world is telling you to go and to find yourself, all the new identities that it offers. And I just want to share with you briefly that this is not a new pattern. It's not a new thing. In fact, it's been going on. You can think back in our own culture. Just think back a few decades, 1960s when we were told the way to find identity was through the sexual revolution. If you could just be free, love was free, and, and you could find who you were through that sexual revolution. And then when that didn't work, we turned to drugs in the 70s, and so things got worse as people turned their hearts and were told that they needed to escape the, the boredom and the monotony of their everyday lives, and they could have a higher level of consciousness and greater meaning through the use of drugs. And then as that turned out to be not such a great thing and not a real good way to live your life, things got worse in the 80s and 90s as the drugs got harder and people had to do worse things to try to escape from themselves and so they did harder and harder drugs and they were told many times by our culture popularly that they would be able to get away from that from their life and from from the identity that was created by others if they did these things and then in the 2000s now what we've done is we've tried to tell people well that's not really the way instead what you need to do is you need to find yourself be yourself create your own identity and and so people have been running around searching for an identity and what most of them find is that it does not fulfill them at all. And the new identity that they're looking for, they have to just keep searching for and searching for and searching for and searching for. But what the gospel does is totally different because the gospel has been the same since the moment Jesus was on the earth and died on the cross for you. And Jesus does not stand before you and he doesn't say to you, hey, listen, I've got a new idea this decade. He stands before you and he says to you, if anyone wants to have life, I have it but you've got to die to yourself and follow me. He says, if you, wanna, if you wanna know what real life is, if you want real identity and meaning and purpose, if you want something that doesn't change every decade as the culture offers it, if you want something that is solid and that will hold you, he has it, but it requires that you die so that you can really live in him. It requires that you give up yourself and you come to Christ. And this morning, that's what he's offering. He doesn't change his offer. The decades don't change his offer. His offer is the same to every person, every man, every woman throughout all of time. If any of you is thirsty, if any of you is hungry, if any of you wants for identity, if any of you wants for real life, I've got it. 
I gave my life for you when I died on the cross. And if you want real life, the kind of resurrection life, the only way you'll get it is if you come through me and that you die to yourself and you replace self with me. And so this morning, I'm not going to ask you that if you'd like to pray a prayer or, or raise a hand, I, I will pray with you in just a moment, but I'm not just saying we're going to slap a prayer on this. I'm saying if you have not committed your life to Christ in the sense that I just described, you've never said, Jesus, I I'm not holding back. I I'm pouring my life out on you. I know you're the Savior, and I may not have all the confidence in the world that I can do everything perfectly from here because that's not what salvation is, but but. But what I'm going to do is today I'm going to pour my life out on you with the intention that every day my life is yours. I'm pouring it out on you because I've tried all these other ways that the world offers and none of them has given life. I want something that's real. I want you, Jesus. If that's you, you don't have that kind of relationship with God that comes by faith in his son, Jesus Christ. And you want to say today, I want to pour my life out on him. I want to pour my life out. I want to say, Jesus, come and save me. Forgive me from my sin. Renew me. Restore me. Remake me. Make me new. I want to be born again. If that's you, this morning, I'm going to ask you to do this so I can pray with you. And just so that there's an opportunity for you at least to not be afraid of other people, like the people we read about this morning were, but to confess, I, I want to believe in Jesus. If that's you, would you just lift up your hand quickly? You want to know Jesus as your Savior. You don't know him in the way I've described this morning. You haven't given your life to him, poured your life out on him. If that's you, just lift up your hand. If you've raised your hand this morning, I'm going to pray. These are not magic words. I just want to help you express faith in Jesus. So as I pray, you make this your prayer. You pour your heart and your life out on Jesus as I pray, and you put your trust in him. Heavenly Father, in Jesus' name, I come to you, and I recognize that I'm sinful, I've done wrong, and I've run from you, and I've tried to find life and identity in so many places other than you. But today, Jesus, I recognize that you are life, and I come to you, and I ask that you would forgive my sin, and that you would make me whole again. I pray, Jesus, that you would restore me and give me a new life, not one that I've earned or deserved, but one that comes because of your faithfulness and your love. I pray, Jesus, that you would take out the selfish rottenness of my soul and that you would replace it with your Holy Spirit and teach me to love you. Lord Jesus, I love you today. I confess my love for you and I want to follow you from now on. In Jesus' name, amen. If you prayed that prayer this morning, in just a moment, there are going to be some prayer partners. They're going to be up here at the front facing out and when we close the service, if you'd come forward. They want to talk with you, and I want to encourage you, don't just leave and go, well, that was good enough. No, no, we're talking about you pouring your life out. If you're afraid to come pray with somebody who's going to be so excited to talk with you, it's going to be really hard for you to really stand with Jesus and to love him in the midst of people who really don't think he's so great. So please, before you leave, would you come and pray with one of them? I'm going to ask if the Christians will respond in this way. Maybe you have poured your life out on Christ already, but there's some tension returning. There's some distraction in that relationship. Maybe you recognize some selfishness and sinfulness that's creeping in, and you need to pour your life out on him again. I'm going to, in a moment, I'm going to begin to sing. There's no music because I don't have the music, and it's an older song. Some of you may recognize it, but I'm going to sing. And when I sing, if you just want to pour your life out on Jesus again, you can stand. Or maybe you want to find a place to pray and say, Jesus, I'm coming to kneel like Mary at your feet and I want to pour my love out on you. Maybe you just say, Jesus, I want to renew that, that heart that says everything. I'm holding nothing back from you, Lord. I'm giving all to you, Jesus. I want to encourage you to respond as I begin to sing.
It, this song is, is pretty simple. It just goes like this. Like oil upon your feet, like wine for you to drink, like water from my heart, I'll pour my love on you. If praise is like perfume, I'd lavish mine on you till every drop is gone. I'll pour my love on you. If you want to respond, you can just stand or find a place to kneel and pray. We're going to sing it a couple more times. Like oil upon your feet, like wine for you to drink, like water from my heart, I pour my love on you. If praise is like perfume, I'd lavish mine on you till every drop is gone. I'll pour my love on your feet like wine for you to drink, like water from my heart. I pour my love on you. If praise is like perfume, I'd lavish mine on you till every drop is gone. I'll pour my love on you. Jesus, today we want to pour our love out on you. Lord, we recognize that sometimes our lives get so cluttered and filled and distracted and the tension builds and, and selfishness grows and we forget, Jesus, all that you've done for us. But today we recall the cross and the resurrection. And Jesus, we recall what discipleship is. We know that it is a pouring out of ourselves on Christ. Lord, please forgive us as believers when we have lost our way and we are no longer fully poured out on you. We've held back a few things. We've held back energy and effort and time and talent and resource. And instead of pouring it all out on you, we've said, oh, that, that piece is mine. Forgive us, Lord, when we have bought into the ways of the world of thinking that we can give a little bit and that's gonna be enough for Jesus. Forgive us when we thought of sacrifices, I'm bringing a little and shouldn't God be happy with that? When you sent your son Jesus to die for us and gave all for us, please forgive us, Lord, when we are so cheap with our sacrifice toward you. And Lord, I pray that you'd restore in our hearts just that desire, that, that hunger in worship, that, that intensity of devotion, that extravagance in, in our service that we would say, we're pouring it all out, Lord Jesus. Every drop, the jar has been broken. There's no putting it back inside. There's no shoving it all back in. There's no place to hold it except to pour it on Jesus. And Lord, I pray that our whole lives would be that. Jesus, would you help us confront our selfishness, confront our sinfulness, and call us, Lord, to that freedom of being totally surrendered to Christ, totally set apart for you. We love you, Lord. We thank you, Jesus. We worship you. You are good. You are worthy. You are king. Your victory, your love, your light, your purpose, you're the bread of life. Your living water, Jesus, we worship your name. There's no one who's like you, Lord. 
There's nothing like you in the world. We wanna pursue you like we pursue nothing else. We wanna love you like we love nothing else. We want no idol to stand in the way. We want nothing to replace you inside, not even ourselves, but that, Lord, our devotion would be all poured out on you. We thank you, Jesus, for this. We bless your name. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. If you want to remain and pray, I'm going to, I'm going to dismiss service, but if you want to remain and pray, you are certainly welcome to do so. Prayer partners, if you'd come and just stand ready, if you raised your hand and you committed your life to Christ, and one of the prayer partners is going to stand facing the congregation. Please come and speak with one. They would love to pray with you and help you know where do you go from here. But for the rest of us, this week, Sunday afternoon, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, today, Jesus, every drop, pouring it out on you, everything given to you. Have a great week. Go in God's grace, and don't let anything disrupt the extravagance of your worship to Jesus. Amen, church? We'll see you soon.